but it can only come back if we come up with consumer applications that 10x the number of users is what NFTs did it. The primary benefit cannot be price speculation. It's got to be something that feels really real. Welcome to the Sport and Crypto podcast, where we talk to leaders in sports and Web3 about their journeys in this crazy world. On episode seven, I am joined by Nigel Eccles, who is the co-founder of BetDex and Vault, and he was the co-founder of FanDuel, amongst a lot of other things. Nigel, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about what you're focusing your energy on right now? My main focus right now is Vault. Vault is a, a new digital music format. You know, it's interesting today, uh, when people think about music, they really think about streaming. It's a dominant platform. They listen on their phone on Spotify or Apple Music. But what we know with fans and what I know myself is that people love collecting music. And so back in the 90s, it was CDs. In the 80s, it was vinyl. And vinyl's actually seeing a resurgence. The problem with those two formats is, well, nobody has a CD player um, or, or record player. And even those formats, even if you did have that player, it's not very convenient. You can't listen on your phone. They degrade. So... We said, well, how about we create a new format that is purely digital, so people can listen to it on their phone, but is scarce. So we work with the artist and we create an EP or an album or a single that there's only 100 or 200 versions of, and they sell it. Now, it's built on blockchain, uh, so every one of those uh, singles or albums is an NFT, but that NFT unlocks that media, downloads it to your phone, and then you can play it. And our focus is sort of, Mostly right now, it's indie rock in New York, but we're like spinning up Nashville. We're actually spinning up uh, in Amsterdam as well. And the idea for artists is that this is a new revenue stream on top of streaming where they can really sell something to their top fans. That sounds awesome. I mean, I, I joked with someone the other day that for Taylor Swift's recent tour, she basically did an NFT, but physical. Right, yeah. <laughs> she sold the CD right. and you got like early access to tickets. That's right. And they, she's also done, like she is such an innovator and it's interesting. I think the industry needs to look more closely at what she does and not think that only she can do it because, you know, for example, she's dropping vinyl that some of those songs are only in that vinyl format. So if you want to listen to that song, you've got to buy the album and you know what? She sells a lot of vinyl. And so other artists can do it. Like no one has the reach uh, that she does, um, a reach and intensity, but there are smaller artists that have super engaged fans. If you said to them, hey, the song is not on Spotify, you can only buy it in this format, they absolutely would do it. And that's what we're working for artists. The moment, the problem is that, you know, artists are under monetizing their top fans and they're like selling them cap, some merchandise. And we're like, you should sell them their music, like create something exclusive. So that's the idea behind Vault. And talk to us about BetDex mm -hmm. as well, because yeah. that's the other company yeah, you're juggling. Yeah, the other company. So I started BetDex two years ago with two co-founders. I'm the chairman, non-executive chairman. The idea there is that 20 years ago, uh, I was an early employee at Betfair. BetDex is very similar to Betfair. But I'd say when I left in 2003, I even then felt that we weren't necessarily innovating enough. And I sort of, as I've watched that company over the last 20 years... They actually invented a lot of things like in-play, but no one would know that because that wasn't the first experience of, of in-play betting. It wasn't on Betfair. And we felt that there was an opportunity to build a new version of Betfair, but doing it in a, in a decentralized way and in a permissionless way. So the way to think about it is there's something like 10,000 different sports books in the world, and that's an estimate. It might be 20,000. There's a lot of these are in Asia and no one really knows who owns them. But you can think of those as all isolated liquidity pools of bets. And what we want to do is to basically create the plumbing that all of those books could share bets with each other. And so the way BetDex works is the brand name is BetDex, but BetDex is built on this Monaco protocol. Monaco protocol is basically a way for sports books to talk to each other to basically trade bets with each other. And so what happens is user comes into BetDex, says, I want to play us $100 on Man United at 2.0, whatever odds, that bet goes into Monaco. It sits there and it advertises to all the other brokers and says, hey, I've got this bet. Does anybody else want to take it? Somebody can come in via another broker and take the other side of the bet. The user's money goes from their wallets 
straight uh, into the smart contract. And when the event happens and settled, it settles straight back out to the user. So basically the broker never touches the money. Like the money is never uh, held by a third party. It's either in your wallet or it's in the smart contract. Very smart. Yeah. Then it gets, <laughs> and you know, the technology, I think one of the challenges we've discovered with crypto is it's hard to build on. My estimate is it probably takes three times as long and costs three times as much to build an equivalent Web2 product. But the opportunity if you can build this is so exceptional because now we can say to sports books, hey, you can plug into this liquidity and no one can rug you because this is actually a shared infrastructure that we're all sharing in. And that's really powerful. But that's kind of one of the reasons why we're in 2023 and we don't have a ton of great products is it's really hard to build this stuff. I think that the trustless nature, building that in, as you said, takes longer, but in the long term is much more worth it. Oh, absolutely. Like just to give you an example of Betfair, which is a great example, you know, in 2003, when we were, you know, running this product, we, you know, we had an advertising slogan, which is winners welcome. And we used to, we used it for years. Well, winners were welcome until they weren't. Uh, and, and Betfair introduced like a profits tax and said, yeah, you're welcome, but we want 40% of your profits. And that... I think underlined to betters was that we are totally beholden to this company. Betfair was a monopoly, like or certainly at the time, there's smaller competitors now. But in effect, everyone grumbled, but everyone paid it, right? And there was because the liquidity were, was there. The liquidity was there and they were a monopoly and they had no choice. I'm not saying Betfair did the wrong thing. I think they probably did the right thing for business reasons, but we want to build something where we can't do that. You know, we're really successful in five years' time. We were like, hey, can we do a profit stack? We, we literally can't do it because we actually don't own the protocol. We've actually decentralized that. And speaking of, I mean, your background and then coming into Web3 Crypto, where did that personal and then professional interest get sparked? Yeah, so I think... I first got interested in crypto sort of in one of the last bull markets, 2017. One of the challenges, I love building consumer products. I have no interest in building infrastructure like, hey, I built this new L1 that, you know, somebody else can go build something useful on. It's like, sure, but it's just not what I like doing. I like building a product I can put in a consumer's hands and they're like, oh, this is cool. You could do, we could, we could do this, we could do that. And in 2017, there was no consumer products. Like there basically was the crypto kitties was probably the only one. It was one. the only one and that broke Ethereum. So like broke you know, Ethereum. And like when I looked at like the throughput of Ethereum, I'm like, this just doesn't work. And then actually in 2020, when I started getting back into it, um, the products that I got into, which is kind of funny now, were Nifty Gateway mm. and NBA Top Shot. And the reason was, was they were consumer products. They allowed credit card and they were fast and they actually had a consumer proposition. I'm kind of surprised that three years later, we don't have a ton more like that, that are like, you know, have a clear proposition that users can come in and, and you still have the benefit of being on the blockchain. I can take those NFTs off and self-custody them and I have. But, you know, those were like early innovators. And that's, that's what we need to do in crypto is to kind of come to the user. This whole idea that we're going to teach every, you know, in the next billion users to self-custody and learn, you know, seed phrases is, is, is a fantasy. Like what we have to do, no, no technology ever works like that. We have to basically build it so that they can get the benefits of it having to like go through some like, you know, crypto 101 course. And you mentioned before we started recording that you were a little bit disappointed that we're in mid-23. We've not yeah. seen as much consumer-facing stuff. Why do you think that is? Probably two of the biggest reasons are, I think one I mentioned before is building on crypto is really hard. The team we have on Bad Decks are some of the best engineers I've ever worked with. A lot of them are ex-Fanduel, so they built the Fanduel Sportsbook, which is the leading sportsbook in the US. But to build that product, we're now about a year and a half in. Um, it is now kind of approaching where we want it to be sort of pretty feature complete and it's competitive for the Web2 product. But that has taken an incredible investment to get there. Even simple things like having a MyBets or, you know, th those have been really challenging to build, getting speed down to, like, we're built on Solana. It's fast and cheap, but, you know, competing with Web2 is, is really hard because it's very, very fast and cheap. That's number one, which is it is hard to build. And then number two is I think there's a real challenge in Web3 with like perverse incentives. 
I could go and build a product that users want, but it's really hard. It's going to take multiple years. Or I could do the next meme coin <laughs> and, and flip it, and and you know, and and or, or even I could do the next L one, which you know has this like promise, and I'll get to token unlock, and and I'll actually make millions of dollars without actually delivering a use case. And that to me is perverse. The kind of you know we do need better infrastructure in crypto, particularly in, in wallets. Like, do we need, you know, another L1, another L2 that does pretty much the same as the other one? I don't necessarily think so, given we're not necessarily using the current stuff. I think VCs are identifying them, which is why they're not investing as much in consumer, which is it's really hard. It's very low success rate. And, you know, it's likely that you're not going to have much adoption at all. And it's hard to have a narrative story if you don't have much adoption. Whereas if I have a piece of infrastructure, I can have this narrative and I can incentivize adoption. So that's that's kind of the perverse incentives. On the other side of that, you've got two consumer facing. Right, yeah. yeah <laughs> as yeah. you say that, how well have Vault and BetDex done so far in terms of, you know, give us some cool stats. BetDex, uh, if I cover that one first, it seems... Great growth this year. I think our weekly volumes are up something like 20x on the start of the year. Uh, in terms of volumes, I think we're in the region of several hundred thousand a week um, in traded volume, which is great. And not all of it through BetTex. That's through the Monaco protocol. Um, that's really important to us as well, is that I often talk about BetDex. BetDex is a demo tape for Monaco, right? And success for us is that Monaco is successful, not necessarily that BetDex is successful. We want BetDex to be successful, but we want to show it to other people that they should be plugging into Monaco as well, because BetDex is fundamentally built in Monaco. And, and have other people plugged yes, in yet? Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a number of other brokers built on and it shares liquidity and it works seamlessly. Awesome. And then Vault? Yeah, so Vault is seeing very strong growth. It's a two-sided marketplace. So on one side, we have the artists and the other side, we have the fans. The artists come first, right? Like, there's no point bringing in fans if there's nothing for them to buy. Um, and also, people aren't music fans. They're fan of, I'm fan of the Telescope. I'm a Taylor Swift fan, right? Um, or like the artists that we have, like a lot in the New York indie rock scene, like Sid Simons or or The Cave or Telescreens. I'm a fan of that artist. Am I going to buy of another artist? Maybe, but much more that if it's an artist that I love. And so our focus has been bringing in those artists and then giving them the sort of tools that they can then market it to their fans. And so growth there has been really strong. I think last month, uh, well, in July, we had about 15 drops. This month, it's going to be 30. Next month, we're on track to do about 40, 45. So we're seeing a really nice ramp up. And that's a trajectory we want. The other thing is with Vault is, we're not actually after mainstream artists. Like we literally have turned on conversations because, <laughs> and it seems crazy, but we need to get authenticity with emerging artists. They're the ones who really want this and really need it. So mainstream artists actually do quite reasonably well at a streaming. Emerging artists do terribly well. They're like the awful out of it. Like they don't, you can see an artist, just to give you an idea, if you get a million streams on Spotify, that's worth about three and a half thousand dollars. Getting to a million streams is quite hard, right? And so we can work with artists and we can say, and that might take you a year, we can work with an artist and we say, hey, if you've got a really dedicated fan base and we'll price like an EP at $25, we need to sell about 120 of them for you. Like if you've got 120 to get to the same 10 million streams. And so we've been doing that with some artists. And it's not either or, right? So put your album out on, on the DSPs, which is Spotify, uh, but let's create a deluxe version and let's sell that to your top fans. And also it's a funnel, right? Because where do artists make the most money nowadays is touring. And so like if you're going to sell directly to your super fans, you can then upsell them, them into, in, yeah. into touring. Well, it's actually funny. Um, for emerging artists, touring actually is a cost. Turing is very profitable for a major artist. Like obviously Taylor Swift's doing phenomenally well, but for a new artist, you're actually trying to build a fan base. And so they actually normally, even mid-tier artists will often lose money Turing. And so it, often actually when you talk to artists, when they talk about revenue streams, merch is one a really big one, which is kind of crazy, right? It's like they're creating something that their fans love and they're making money from T-shirts, that's crazy, right? And so that's what we're trying to like. And when we talk to fans, like, what would you pay for? And they're like, more music, right? Like, I love this artist. And we're like, oh, there's currently no way for them to do that. And that's, that's where the vault format comes in. Just shifting gears a little bit, 
you're obviously a, a successful entrepreneur on the Web2 side, a budding successful entrepreneur yeah. on the Web3 side. When you're having conversations with old friends, old colleagues, and you're like, I'm building two companies in crypto, how do some of those conversations go? Like, what do you have to explain to make them see the magic of this industry? Yeah, it's, you know, it's been really interesting uh, for people really outside crypto. I've had a number of people like, oh, crypto's dead, you know, like, oh, I thought crypto was dead kind of thing. And I think the funny thing is, I think we had a little bit of ambivalence about the boom nature of crypto two years ago. Like, it was great. We raised a lot of money, particularly for bet decks, um, and benefited from that. But the level of scams and just like nonsense projects that were launched that like had no footing and no bearing and you know solving a user problem, I think that was really bad. And and it was kind of embarrassing. I remember watching a program on CBS about like the metaverse and NFTs with my ten year old daughter. I kind of felt embarrassed to be in the industry, to be honest. Like, I'll, I'll be totally honest. Like, it just, it just the ridiculousness of it. And, you know, the, the people were making millions of dollars from art that the people who collected it, like, didn't care about art. Like, they, they, they suddenly they were a big fan of this artist. And it was bullshit. And we all knew it was. And so I find that sort of slightly uncomfortable. The bear market... Obviously, it's a lot worse for fundraising, but for building it genuinely is much better, right? And certainly when I've talked to friends, I don't really talk to them about the crypto element. I talk about the benefits. And like that's like, you know, if they're into music, I'll talk to them about music they love collecting, right? And, and a lot of people collect vinyl now, and so they get that. And, I, and then I show them, say, well, what if you could, instead of buying a vinyl record, which is really clunky and not very portable, what if you could buy it on your phone, and, but you would own it? And that gets them interested. And they're like, oh, do you have this artist? And we're like, give us, give us some time. <laughs> and they usually ask for like Taylor Swift. And I'm like, okay. I'll can see I you in 10 years. <laughs> can I start you a little smaller? You know, so they always talk about the benefits. And similar with Betex, you know, we talk about, and, and you know, there's one area, one class of user where Betex is particularly interesting, which is your sort of professional and aspiring professional user where like in the US, like you just get shut down, right? You'll get limited to $1 bets. There's no sports book in the US advertises winners welcome because they're not. Um, and so, uh, but it's the same in the UK as well, like outside of Betfair. So with Betdex, where we talk to them and say like, we're very clear. It's like, we were never going to shut down winners. Like we want winners on the platform and our margins are more like 1% compared to like the 15% that the sports books take here. So if honestly, like we kind of joke, I say like, if you bet on a traditional sports book, UK, US or anywhere else, you're a loser. And the reason you're a loser is because if you were a winner, you wouldn't be betting on them. The sports books are very, very good at identifying who winning users are. And so that's kind of like our like one of our big pitches is like, don't be a loser. <laughs> like bet, bet, on, bet somewhere where you can actually win. Yeah. And because of the competitive nature of the brokers all bidding for the bid, for the bet, you're yeah. always going to get a really good odds. Yeah, absolutely. It's like guaranteed best prices with the lowest margins. Makes a lot of sense. I want to delve into... Again, you're speaking to someone from the outside in, they don't work in crypto. And I had loads of conversations where even people brand side, people who are like crypto curious, where they're like, oh, I thought like NFTs were Bitcoin. Aren't they really bad for the environment yeah, 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 still? Yeah. And all that kind of thing. And yeah. What's the most surprising thing that still gets brought up that you have to kind of explain? That's actually not the way it works. Yeah. Is it still like, isn't this just right click save? We don't get that as much anymore. The, the environmental stuff was particularly real concern among uh, music artists. That's gone away mostly now for good reasons, because it's not true. Um, it, it maybe was, there was issues before the merge. I would say that the biggest issue now is just brand reputation, right? Like it is, it is a soil brand NFTs. Like we don't market it as NFTs. We never market them as NFTs. NFTs, unfortunately, have been too associated with cash grabs and rug pulls and scams that there's an open question to me of, of that brand, that word ever gaining kind of credibility again, which is a shame. I, I, in music, there's been a kind of move to talking about on-chain music. It's kind of like, let's rebrand. Crypto art, on-chain art. art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's, and, you know, for us... We've not had to because we've never called it that. Like all, we just say this is a new digital music format, right? And and uh, uh, the crypto part. If someone 
really wants to get into it, they can like they can buy in Solana and they can self custody it. But we don't market that to consumers or artists. So we often don't get into that conversation. I was saying yesterday to someone that it's really weird that you mentioned Top Shots, and I want to ask you a couple yeah, yeah. of questions in that in the second half, but. That was a platform that you yeah. could buy NFTs on. Vault yeah. is a platform yeah. that you could buy artist NFTs yeah, yeah. on. NFTs are like the furniture, but if you don't have the house to put them in, right. yeah. they're kind of useless. Yeah. Basically, after the NBA Topshop boom, you saw a lot of furniture get built yeah. and no houses. That's right. And yeah. so I'm really interested in seeing the platformification side yeah. of things, like with Dot Swoosh, Alts by Adidas, yeah. Starbucks, etc. Yeah. Like one of the reasons that so rare and uh, Topshop were really successful is because there was a place to do Something stuff to do yeah, yeah, with yeah, the things. Yeah. And I, I'm fascinated as to why we had that. And I think you mm. mentioned cash grabs are probably the reason. Yeah, yeah. That period of 12, 18 months where we saw a lot of furniture built yeah. and no housing. I think it's, it's funny. A friend of mine always talks about it and he always says, it's just it's just all roads and no cars, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, And it is. It's literally like, hey, I want to get from here to there. And they're like, well, look at this amazing highway we've built. <laughs> and you're like, okay, what do I do with it? Like, we're working on that. Or actually somebody else is hopefully working on that, right? That That's kind of like a, the status. And it definitely is an issue. I think one of the problems was, is being an issuer of NFTs was very profitable. Being the person trying to figure out what to do with them and where to put them and how to make them useful, that was less so. And and, and the use case that just became the case very early on, which was very lucrative and before until it wasn't, was it the use case the user is like, you'll make a lot of money, right? Like that was the problem was that, well, we could actually do a lot of work to try and like, put together a use case, turn this into a ticket and like totally rewire the entire ticketing system. Or we could tell people they're going to make a lot of money from it, <laughs> and which doesn't involve any work at all, right? And unfortunately, we saw a lot more of the latter than the former. Like, so for example, with Vault, you know, we could have issued music NFTs a year and a half ago. We could have like literally pretty much done it in a couple of days. And instead we said, why don't we build a player, which is a native iOS and Android app that basically takes an NFT, goes to our weave, gets the media, which is stored, we store there in an encrypted format. It decrypts it, downloads it to the user device and plays it in an experience that's competitive with Spotify, right? That's what we built. It took us a year and a half, right? It was really difficult. And again, and this is, and it has to happen in a speed at which people are used to with Spotify. That's what's taken a year and a half of building. And very few people have taken that approach, right? Like, But that is the only long-term approach because telling people that they're going to make a lot of money from it like worked really well and then stopped when they stopped making money from it. And it just doesn't really have a future. But building something that actually is like a real consumer benefit, that's what's got a real consumer future, like a real future. Really excited to speak about the future in the second half of the show. But before we move on to that, I need to tell you a little bit about our Sponsors, the HBAR Foundation, who are an ecosystem accelerator of Hedera, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Together with industry-leading use cases and globally renowned partners, the foundation is actively scaling Web3 consumer engagement across the metaverse, gaming, DeFi, regenerative finance, and beyond. So let's talk a little bit about the sports market specifically. You mentioned NBA Top Shot being one of your onboarding moments. Yeah. Why was it so good? Actually, in 2019, I started a sports cards business. And we got into one of my co-founders, super into sports cards. Top Shot was a very natural innovation. And it was quite funny. I remember having this discussion with them and he was like, I don't get it. Like, it's just like a, it's just a picture. Why would it have any value? Like, why would anybody buy it? And I'm like, you literally spend thousands of dollars on pieces of cardboard, right? Every month, right? Like he literally, like he loves them, right? And he's collecting them since he was a kid. And at that point, he, like he got into, he was like, okay, I, you know, I started to like sort of see the connection. He, and I think the difference was that when you have like a childhood connection to an asset, like to something like that you collect, that you can see value in it, and then other people can see value in it. I think one of the things we saw with NFTs is that they speed ran a hundred years that the card mark took it to go from, card started off as things that were stuffed into cigarettes packets, right? To just like help sell them. They were worthless. And for a long time they were worthless. And then 
kids started collecting them and they were like valuable to kids, but not not that much. And then in time, they became kind of a collector's item. They did sets and stuff. Then they started to appreciate in value and became investment assets. So like, oh, no, these actually have accrued in value and they're actually a good investment. And we had a burst called in the junk wax era. We had massive supply. So pretty much what happened in NFTs. And then obviously, inevitably, everything crashed and everything stayed crashed. Although with some like resurgence, but in actually in 2020, the sports card market boomed and in 21 and 22, it crashed again. But basically, NFTs kind of did that in three years. In 2020, you could have gone and bought a Beeple for a dollar on Nifty Gateway, right? You just rock up and you're like, oh, it's a Beeple, right? And by 2021, there was one of them going for $69 million, right? Like that's how quickly it went from worthless or like worth a dollar to being something that was worth a huge amount. So NFTs have followed that 100-year trajectory in like a space of about a year or two, which I think is incredible. I think they maintain their kind of, they stay as an interesting collectible asset. The challenge with them is always going to be that like value is completely correlated with scarcity. And it's very easy to create NFTs, incredibly easy to create them. And so what you have to do is like create, how do you create ones that have real scarcity and that's the value of create. So that, that, that market I think is interesting and it's kind of like a collectible market, but collectibles isn't that big a market. Like sports card market is probably like a couple of billion a year. Anything between 15 and 40, that's the, like, but that's for everything, you know, right. shirts and balls and Yeah, like it's, it's an interesting market. I think where NFTs get really interesting is where you use that technology to unlock an even bigger market. Um, so, for example, uh, let's take music. So the vinyl market in North America is over a billion dollars. This is for a format that is barely usable, right? <laughs> like, we don't leave Like, you can use it when you're in your living room and you've got your record player and you're willing to get up every 25 minutes and flip the record, right? That's about a billion dollars. But even bigger than that is the music market in North America lost $10 billion over the last 20 years. It's actually $10 billion smaller uh, because of top fans no longer spend. Like 20 years ago, they were spending $1,000 a year. How could you help bridge that? Well, NFTs is a way to actually create a, a, a format. Basically, that's just one example. In sports, it's like, well, how do we create scarcity? But how do we extend the NFTs to be able to do something? And so obviously two areas, one is fantasy sports. I think that's where SoRare have done a really nice job of like, okay, these are valuable because there's a really cool game here. You can play with them. And there's, you know, it's a resource management game. And the other is kind of would be interesting is ticketing. But that's a really complicated thing to do. There's a lot of rewiring. And so that one, I don't think we've seen as much progress. But that's where I think NFTs become much bigger than just sort of being a collectible. That's really interesting. And I, w- I was going to ask about ticketing mm. and, and, and so on and so forth. Aside from, you know, the fancy gaming, yeah. the kind of digital collectible and ticketing, is there anything else? I mean, you've we were talking off air about DAOs and how actually of all the DAOs on the, the consumer facing or yeah. cultural side, yeah. Yeah. sports is actually having a little bit of a, an interesting moment because over the last six months, we've had like Kraushaus get name checked yeah. as a potential buyer yeah, of the yeah. Phoenix Suns, yeah. Lynx DAO, yeah. uh, buy a golf course, yeah, yeah. karate combat transition into That's a right. DAO. Uh, yeah. Quite interesting. Yeah. Th- so those three are all great examples. And actually, they are probably the best examples of all DAOs, not just within sports, but you know, candidly, DAOs have been a massive disappointment over the last, you know, 18 months. Like, you know, uh, 18 months ago, they were, you know, they went to buy the Constitution. And we're like, what we could do if we had a DAO in terms of like 18 months later? Well, like, what have DAOs done? Not a lot, right? Um, uh, outside of those three examples were actually, I think, are really interesting. I think there's two challenges. One is just like, organizational, like, you know, a lot of things should not the be The organizational part in uh, the DAO. Yeah, in the DAO, right? Like, like I'd say, you know, the, the O, yeah, has, has been a real challenge. Like, a lot of things should not be run as democracies. Um, startups are naturally chaotic and you need to have leadership. And I think a lot of DAOs discovered that you can't just delegate leadership. You know, you have to have a direction and a purpose and you have to have somebody to, like, keep you on track. The other challenge, I think, with DAOs is, I think, whenever you're like, you know, buying real world assets, you start to run into real world laws, right? Like, <laughs> And so you have to start to think about like, well, is this a security? And what is the rights and responsibilities of a DAO member? And these are like, 
real world things. These are like, unfortunately, things as adults we have to deal with. And we can't just say it's decentralized and sort of say it's a DAO. You know, and actually there's been recent legal rulings to like say, actually, as a member of a DAO, you have responsibilities here, legal liabilities. And those are sort of like bigger challenges I think a lot of DAOs need to work through. It's very interesting to see more than one be quasi-successful so far. And I think there's been some interesting launches from Rugby DAO and CellGP yeah. have got a team that is being run by a DAO. Be interesting to see how those projects yeah, go yeah. as well. Obviously, clearly looking at those three examples we mentioned. I had so many conversations with people probably 12 to 18 months ago from either the sports mm -hmm. or the crypto industry all being like, we need to buy a team. We need to, and yeah. we need to run it and give yeah. it to the fans and stuff. Almost all of those have gone badly. You know, the organizational part is one, but yeah. also not actually understanding what fans want. Yeah. Like, I don't want to pick who plays left yeah. back or wide receiver. It's, it's a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah. And like, I, I don't necessarily want to pick who the coach is. Because yeah. like, surely someone who's paid $8 million yeah, a yeah. year to manage a football team knows more than me about yeah, it yeah. as a fan. Yeah. And so finding that balance took ages and yeah. a lot of DAOs or projects just mm. died because they didn't, they didn't get there. They yeah. never got to the point where you could actually put something tangible into fans' hands from a decision-making perspective yeah. that was really like what they wanted. Yeah, I think that's true. Although the one th thing that I'd argue about uh, DAOs owning sports teams is there's something intrinsically about it making more sense that the fans own the team than a billionaire owns a team, right? Like it's like people talk about their team. I'm like, it's not your your team. Like, I hate to break it to you. You might have been a lifelong Patriots fan, but you know what? Robert Kraft owns it, and he doesn't really give a shit what you think. <laughs> you know, like, and, and you to him are like, uh, you know, I, like, he's a good guy, but like, you know, like, are you really anything more than someone who buys a season ticket and contributes money to the team and which helps enriches him? Like, our, like let's take another example. Dan Schneider, he's just made, what, five billion through his mismanagement of the Redskins or sorry, the commanders over the last 20 years. How has that enriched the fans in any way? And so DAOs owning teams is a much better structure. And like one of the problems for DAOs is like, DAOs can't raise five billion to buy these teams. It'd nearly be better that we as fans decided, you know what, we're going to give up those sports. We're going to have new sports. And we are, as fans are going to own these teams and that's what we're going to support to try and sort of prize them away from the 70, 80 year old owners that like don't really care about us as fans. Like that would be a, you know, a utopian future, right? Where it would be our team. Like we all have a stake in it. Um, you know, and the Green Bay is kind of halfway there, like in that it's not owned by, it's kind of, it's sort of like a trust, but it doesn't necessarily have like the engagement, like it has hugely passionate fans, just as if it's owned by nobody. But, you know, I think that the DAO could bring us more than kind of involvement of the fans in actual decision-making process in an intelligent way, yeah, right? Like That's the key. In an intelligent, like that's, you know, and, and in a meaningful way, like, We've seen where it's happened. It's been like, what tune shall they play? Like just kind of meaningless things that like, no one cares about. But I think there is a, like a right structure. Like it took us a long time to figure out, you know, representative democracy, right? You know, we tried lots of other stuff. It didn't work. I think it's uh, there's still something there with teams where there is a structure where people in the DAO can have influence without, you know, and actually have real influence in decisions, but without uh, like, getting involved in like team management and things that they should have no involvement in. People keep saying to me it might be hot down summer, which uh, <laughs> I keep laughing. Oh, really? At. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this summer. Maybe next maybe summer. This summer. Yeah, maybe this yeah. summer. Maybe next summer. I don't know. Um, it's really interesting you say that on the like new sport front because we've seen some examples like fan controlled football not coming mm -hmm. back for season three. I think I talked about that a year ago, like nice idea, but like this is where I see the yeah, yeah. was unfortunately. I think that's the way it's gone. We've seen the kind of like fan token model not really, as you mentioned, like, yeah. is there anything beyond choosing the, yeah, the song yeah. in the locker room? Yeah. And how much does that matter to fans? Yeah. The answer is probably not that much. Yeah. There is this also this idea of, well, I, not idea, it's the, the facts that we as sports fans, I include myself in that, mm -hmm. we are a captive audience yeah. and therefore you can be exploited. Yeah. And 
the idea that we can like move away from that is so difficult because this is like generational relationships, right? right? You're yeah. talking about Nick Hornby's but yeah. uh, Fever Pitch. His yeah. dad takes him to a game. He's an yeah. Arsenal fan for life. Yeah. His kids are Arsenal fans, yeah. etc. Actually trying to like prize people away from it mm -hmm. is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And on the other hand, as you said, owners can just be like, well, you know, we're making $3 per head from these fans yeah, yeah. every year. Three thirty. You know, or like in the U.S., or we're just going to move our team to L.A., you know, because they're going to pay us more. And, you know, oh, yeah, it sucks to be, you know, living in uh, St. Louis, but it's my team. You know, that's that's like there's no truer demonstration that it's not your team when the owner decides to move it like, you know, a thousand miles away. But then you win the Super Bowl, right? So. <laughs> I want to go back to you made some predictions for web three at the right. end of 2021 yes, we're, we're kind of joking and laughing yeah. about these but i do think they are spin-offs for very interesting conversations mm. so one of your predictions was we have a breakout web three native game that mm -hmm. is mass market and yeah. fun to play and can only be done with blockchain so yeah that was your prediction for 2022 yeah, yeah yeah and you said a football manager type game might be the most likely yeah and whilst we've gotten quite close with like a nfl rivals and then we've also seen like a Illuvium or, uh, I mean, Star Atlas are going through a, through a bad period, but like gain some traction and have some very, very hardcore fans. For me, we've we found that spectrum of like Web3 within gaming where you have yeah. like a mobile game that has some NFT stuff you can buy all the way to like every fucking thing in this game is yeah. an NFT. We've got a token. Yeah. The game studio is decentralized. We finally found that spectrum. Why don't you think we had that breakout game in 22? And where does that kind of side of the world go? Yeah, I definitely was disappointed in it. And I'm somewhat negative on the, you know, in-game items as NFT um, uh, game game design. Like, to me, it doesn't feel super innovative. It's, I also don't know what the benefit of being an NFT. Like, Call of Duty is an incredible skins market. And it doesn't need to be an NFT in that instance. It's, it's, it's controlled by uh, Steam. I guess it would allow some more sort of third-party integration if they're NFTs, but it still doesn't really get me excited. I think where NFTs are interesting is they create scarcity and ownership, and therefore we could have some really interesting games that are more about the economies and, and scarcity. And there are like resource management games, like obviously football managers are a really classic one, but, you know, civilization is a is a resource management game. There's a whole genre of, of resource management games. So I sort of thought that we might see some really interesting ones there and we didn't. Uh, probably Rivals is probably the best one that we've seen. Why did we not see it? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I just, uh, like, I'm not really in that world. I'm more of a I, I player. I, 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 I play a lot of games. And I love strategy games like that. I don't know if you remember, like, the Wolf game we yeah, had. And yeah, it was, like, Wolf, cool. And we had yeah, all this. Yeah. But this is just DeFi with a game at the front. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was so basic. And then I sort of said, okay, we got the basic stuff. And then we're going to have more innovative stuff. And it just didn't happen. Now, maybe one of the arguments is it's actually really quite hard. And that's probably true. But I, I guess I'm I'm not a game developer, but I still think that his space is wide open. Like I still, I would not be surprised in the next year or so, somebody comes out with a game that's just really different. Right? You know, it's really like, it's not like, oh, this is Call of Duty, but you know, it's with skins that are NFTs, right? Like that sort of yeah. game, which I'm really not excited about because I don't think it, the fundamental of the gameplay hasn't changed. Mm. But if you had a game where it's a resource management game and it actually plugs in, you know, these resources or NFTs and, you know, that to me is, is interesting. The other side of it is, um, I think with other technologies coming to the fore, like, AR, XR, mm. etc. I'm actually quite bullish on games that involve real life stuff, right? So like you talked about a football manager game. What about a player manager game where you're like mm. building a player and playing with them in a game, but also your real life experiences like you doing kickups? I forgot it was um, NBA and uh, the Pokemon Go developers tried to do something similar without the kind of tie back to like a proper game yeah, yeah. so they would you you could shoot hoops with steph curry yeah, yeah. and like go to a court and there'll be a different player but like i do think there's something there around like that pokemon go frenzy where like you're finding stuff that yeah. you can collect it was an example of that somebody was chatting on twitter and it said well could we create a game where 
if you find wildlife, you can then turn it into an NFT, which is your NFT monster, and it becomes like a Pokemon game. And so I actually, with my kids, I use a, an app called Seek, and it basically will identify, you find a creature and you take a picture of it and uh, it tell you what it is. Yeah. And uh, so you actually have that technology to identify. And sometimes you can identify something that's quite rare. It's like um, like we were climbing the Catskills the weekend and, and uh, we actually saw rattlesnakes. And we're like, whoa, this is super cool, right? Like, imagine I could take a picture of that. And I'm like, okay, now I have a rattlesnake, right? Not sure we really want to incentivize people to go into the woods <laughs> to find, find rattlesnakes. I found a yeah, yeah, I there. <laughs> so I think there is, I guess... The challenge of all these things is like... How fun is the game? How fun is the game? Um, and then is it gameable? Like, is it like your people like just like taking pictures of like out of a photo book or... The fact that we're so like scattered and vague about our thoughts here makes yeah. me really think we're still very much in the experimental phase. Yeah, I think like so. Gaming. Yeah. And I do, like, I'll tell you for a fact, and you've had these conversations as well, so many rights holders, so many brands, I think right. like games are the, like, you know, games fast growing industry yeah. entertainment like we need to capture that audience yeah. a, a lot of young people all this kind of stuff there's a real flight to try and find a way yeah. that you become relatable to yeah. that audience and I don't know that there's going to be I guess I, I, you know, for me I expected the innovation to be outside of the rights holders like I just sort of think like I've seen the process of getting rights and it's like it is the antithesis of innovation and, and you know coming up with something cool and new and it just feels that, you know, someone, I thought, you know, the, the, the game will be kind of wacky and weird and fun and won't necessarily, like, in the same way that, like, Among Us just came out of nowhere, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is such a cool game, right? It didn't really need anything new. I think all the technology we have is there to build that game, I guess, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of, I guess I'm looking for somebody else to build it because I'm not a game developer. Let's move on to your second prediction, which was, NFTs gain utility, stuff like NFT tickets, claiming yeah. real-world assets. That was your prediction for 2022. In 23, where do you kind of see that landscape so yeah. far? Yeah, so I think definitely more challenging than I realized. One of the challenges is whenever you bridge, uh, there's actually sometimes here on Twitter just talked about an RWA, real-world asset, like a, a bridge to a real-world asset. Then you have the question, well, who makes that bridge, right? So then there's an entity that makes that bridge. And then you're like, okay, do we trust that entity? And, it, and and if the answer is no, we don't trust it, well, then I'm not sure I want to buy it because I might buy, and I imagine a house was like, uh, you know, part of, you, know, you buy the NFT, you own the house, but I don't trust the entity that bridges it. Well, I would never buy that, right? And then you would say, well, okay, I do trust it. I do trust this entity. So Circle is a good example. They issue USDC. I trust them that they have the money and therefore I'm willing to treat USDC as worth a dollar. But then you get to the question and say, well, if I trust them as a centralized entity, a legal entity, why do I use crypto at all? A lot of the times the answer is don't use crypto, right? Unfortunately, because it's like it's harder to put this on the blockchain. It's more expensive. It's harder to build. I think you do use crypto. And I think Circle is a good example when you want to plug into all of that infrastructure sort of permissionlessly. That's the opportunity. But, you know, there's other instances where I've been chatting to people you know, in supply chain management, and they were like, oh, we're thinking of using crypto. And I'm like, do you think everyone in the industry could trust a third party to track the stuff? And they're like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we use third parties that we trust. And I'm like, don't use crypto then. And then it's kind of quite a kind of intuitive, you know, or like weigh the benefits of using crypto. Like, is there a benefit of being composable and if it's not, then you can just use a centralized entity, you know, and something like Circle was an example where we could trust somebody or we had to trust somebody, but it was still beneficial to do it on crypto. Yeah. And, and it's on chain, right? Like if you ask someone, how many dollars are there in circulation? No one knows the answer. <laughs> well, I think but the Fed might, maybe. Maybe, but like maybe. That's an, it's an estimate, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you ask someone how, yeah. many, how many USDC there are in circulation. Like we you can, can check, just, right. You can just go you check. Can look it up. And so that's a light bulb moment yeah. for some people that like, whoa, that's a right. real unlock. The other thing I would say about one of the challenges with like, you know, real world assets, real world assets also have real world stakeholders, right? So we're like, we're talking about ticketing. Ticketmaster literally controls this market, right? Uh, or largely controls it. It is effectively a monopoly for artists above a certain scale, right? And then and that is actually quite a low point that they have to work with Ticketmaster. And as a fan, I have to buy it from Ticketmaster. Which sucks because it's a terrible sucks. experience. <laughs> right. And so how does anyone disrupt it? Well, 
Ticketmaster has no incentive to disrupt itself, and no one else has the ability to disrupt them because they can't get the venues because they are signed exclusively with Ticketmaster, and they can't get the artists because the artists aren't going to go and play in venues that, you know, they, they can only play in venues that can support, you know, 10,000 people. Well, they're all, again, aligned with Ticketmasters. So it's a really challenging. I will quote someone I know in sport who said, why would I use this blockchain ticketing provider when Ticketmaster give us $10 million a year? Right, yes. And so the capital side of things yeah. for this market is really difficult. And also the license lengths, as you right. mentioned, yeah. right? When you sign a venue exclusive agreement with the venue, Sometimes that's done like before the venue's built. Right, so like yeah. they're using that deal as collateral yeah. to, to actually build the thing. And that's where someone like Ticketmaster has a lot of leverage. They can yeah. have like a 10-year deal or a seven. Yeah. And boy, are they going to renew within five years yeah. because they're making money. The venue needs more money, et cetera, et cetera. And actually that cycle is really difficult. Where I think I've seen the most promise is... Blockchain ticketing companies who don't just have one product, mm-hmm. but they're like, we are blockchain tickets. We'll do your event and we'll issue yeah. tickets. I've met like hundreds of these, right? Mm-hmm. I think someone told me that there's been 160 over the last three years. I've seen the dozens yeah. and a lot of them are like, can you introduce us to like someone at X right holder? Mm-hmm. I'm like, can, but like you're, you're never going to get anywhere yeah, yeah. because they're never going to do anything with you because of like all these tie-ins they have. And actually some of the, the ticketing companies that I've spoken to that have like, well, we do have blockchain tickets, mm. but also if you're working with Ticketmaster or you've already got an exclusive agreement, you can also do this thing, which right. is like a claimable thing. Yeah, you can yeah. exchange your ticket afterwards yeah. for a ticket. You can get a yeah. co-op, you can get free merchandise yeah. through the ticket, all this yeah. kind of stuff. I think some of these companies are going to have to pivot mm. big time to survive. Right. They're not going to survive long enough for some of these mm-hmm. deals to expire and right. then jump in. The other thing is, I, as a consumer, I, I often say, with particular regards to tickets, is be careful what you wish for. Because in the US, uh, there's a law called right of first sale, which basically means that if you buy something, you own it and you can do what you like with it, right? Like, so for example, if I bought a movie, I could resell it or I could lend it to someone, like if I, if I buy like a, like a DVD in the old days. And, and, and that actually went up to Supreme Court because the movie studios sued Blockbuster and said, oh, we don't like, we want to sell our movies. We don't want you like renting it out. And it said, no, there's a right of first sale. Like Blockbuster bought the movie, they can rent it. As long as they're not recording extra copies of it, it's totally legitimate. One of the reasons why Ticketmaster, uh, and so for example, with tickets, again, we have right of first sale. If I buy a Taylor Swift ticket, I have the right to go and sell it, right? That's actually something that I, I should have, right? Uh, if I can't make it, I want to be able to sell it. What the venues and that the uh, the leagues and the likes of Ticketmaster have all hated is they want you to only resell it through their platform, right? Now, that as a consumer, I don't want because then there's no, like they can take a big cut out of it if I have to go and resell it. Now, if that ticket was an NFT, they could basically construct it in a way that I can only resell it through them. And so actually, it beca- going from being a physical ticket to being an NFT actually could turn me as a consumer worse off because I'm actually, I have no way to actually resell it that doesn't go through Ticketmaster. Yeah, I think there's this weird thing we've had where 20 years ago people would like collect tickets Mm -hmm. and now everything's a QR code right yeah so like where do you find the balance where there's still that liquidity to sell your ticket on the secondary market but also have something that like you could showcase something that's a pretty niche market you know it's interesting people have talked about that a lot but coming from the sports card market which is a niche like the ticket market is a niche within that niche like so if you went to the national which is the the largest uh, sports card market like uh, the event like a huge conference normally in Chicago and you'll see this huge room full of people selling uh, sports cards you might see maybe one or two tables of people selling tickets. Wow. You know, like here's here is Elvis the first time he, you know, that, that. and Very few uh, of them have value. It's very, yeah, it's very rare. And people like it, but it's, I'm not sure there's many big businesses to be built on that, uh, unfortunately. I just, I'm not convinced today that it's a huge, huge thing. Where I could see it being quite useful is like sponsorship inventory mm-hmm. and like, data segmentation being like yeah. better um but again like you have to go get the rights first yeah to then to then like prove that out yeah and 
the cool stuff you could do potentially with it is difficult to get. The, the hurdle is like not a hurdle, it's a mountain mm, and yeah. very difficult to scale. Certainly of that prediction, I'm, I'm less bullish on that one. I'm still bullish we're going to get a cool game. Are we going to get NFT tickets? Mm, I'm not so sure. Your third prediction was DAOs have their mainstream moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you said, and we kind of did Constitution DAO. Yeah, like, we did. Enough. Yeah, well, we that really was before did. I made that prediction. Oh, okay, yeah, fair, yeah. fair. Okay. And you said the most likely is a, sp a sports team yeah. buying one. We've already talked about that. Yeah. A last quip on, on DAOs? Uh, DAOs have been such a disaster. <laughs> like, totally honestly. Like, I, I've been involved in a few, and, and uh, one of the things I love about DAOs is their absolute enthusiasm and their ability to pull together thousands of people from around the world to work towards something. That's incredible, that energy. What they have been singularly bad at is like directing it, like and doing and And, you know, like I'd say LinksDAO really stands out to me as one that, uh, like there are other good examples, like obviously like karate.com, but LinksDAO, you know, came together as a DAO and set out as an objective to go do something and actually did it, right? And it's like, it's so exceptional in it being an exception. Um, whereas other DAOs, like even like, let's look at um, what Bordeaux has done, which has been incredibly successful, but all they've really done is managed to sell the future again and again and again. It's like, well, you like Bordeaux, you'll like Mutant Apes, and now you'll like Bordeaux Kennel Club, and now you'll like, you know, the, the land that we're selling, and now you'll like our token, and, and you'll keep spending more and more money, but... We're like, we're still waiting on the game and, you know, the metaverse and the, the thing. Like, and that to me is LinksDAO has actually done something. And that, and so, yeah, very disappointing. I still think that there's something there and that there's not many things that can congeal so much enthusiasm. But what we need to do is to see them actually more execution and direction. I'll finish up on two questions. So one is, what are you most excited about? in this space more broadly mm -hmm. yeah. over the next couple of years. Yeah. Like if we think about the 21 explosion, what was it? It largely, I think, was driven by NFTs. Like obviously it then cascaded into everything else. NFTs, I would say, are, they're a real consumer use case. Like the fine art market and the collectible markets are real markets. And we basically digitized those and that saw a huge resurgence. I still believe that the next, and because crypto is cyclical, it's coming back. But it can only come back if we come up with consumer applications that 10x the number of users is what NFTs did it. The primary benefit cannot be price speculation, right? It's got to be something that feels really real, right? You know, for us, um, like what I spend most of my time on is Vault. And I, I look at I look at that $20 billion that's been lost in North America. I look at music artists that create amazing music and have real fans, but have to have other jobs to support them doing it, that they, when they play a live event, after they've paid for their Uber, they're down money. Like that's literally, and these are artists that will fill out a 300 person venue, right? So I'm obviously hugely biased. What am I mostly excited about? I'm mostly excited about what Vol can do in this industry, which is music, which should be dramatically bigger, right? And artists, shouldn't have to drive to Nashville and live out of their car for like two years to try and make it. They actually should do okay as a live artist, be able to sell music to their fans. So um, that's probably the one. And, and then obviously within betting, with what we're doing with BetDex, the international sort of sports betting market is totally broken and fragmented. What I'm excited about there is that it's kind of like 120 years ago, a lot of, there used to be a lot of trading in the New York Stock Exchange via bucket shops where people would just place bet on shares, right? And it didn't go in, they didn't actually buy the shares. Today, that's what it's like in sports betting. And what I'm excited about what BetDex is doing is we're creating that digital plumbing that sportsbook can pull liquidity. And so we basically have global liquidity pools. Like we basically have what's Man United's odds globally to win this game and there is hundreds of millions of dollars going through on that game that everyone globally can access that that to me is is really exciting so i, I obviously i'm pretty narrowly focused on the things and then just outside of what i'm focused on 
I'm excited that we're going to get a cool game, right? That is going to be weird and it's going to be about resource management and uh, it will be innovative in the say that say the same way that civilization was innovative. It was like, wow, it's an incredible game. It was very different from everywhere else. And then I I am hopeful that we'll we'll see uh, more DAOs like uh Lynx DAO actually buy real world assets and you know channel the enthusiasm of that community into buying something then running it. So I think that'd be like two things that I'm working on, two things that, that I'm more of a spectator. And then conversely what do you think is being overhyped at the moment that you think doesn't have as much of a future? I'm incredibly bearish in AI. Like I'm like, I've used chat GPT. I think it's cool. I don't think it's that smart. And I don't think it's getting that smart anytime soon. I've noticed everyone I've talked to are like, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I use it. I'm like, how much did you use in the last month? They're like, well, I don't really use it that much, right? The incredible thing about AI is how cheap it is at doing basic things not how good it is, right? So I'll give you an example. In music, AI music is not going to become a big thing. I think we're going to have some artists use it really effectively to create like beats and loops uh, or to like create music videos very cheaply. But it's not like we're not all going to be excited about watching the next or listening to the next AI artist, right? So we see that in music. But in other areas, like, sorry, I'll give you another example. Uh, I don't know. I get a ton of like spam from like business services, right? I, I, do you get the AI spam now? Where like no, they, not yet. Oh, so the AI based spam is basically what they do is like they'll they'll use AI to scrape your LinkedIn profile and the, what they know about you, and then they'll work things into the email to look like it's being like personalized for you. So it's like it'll say, "Hey, I saw you went to St Andrews University. That must have been an amazing experience." And it's like. It's like it was like 30 years ago like, or 20 years ago, right? So, but like, or you're in, in, in New York. Have you tried the Andrea's? It's a great restaurant, right? So they've worked these things in to make it more individualized. It's still a crap cold email. And like when I've talked to our guys and they do emails, like actually find out about what they're doing and whether what we're selling them is useful. Instead of sending a thousand emails with this totally crap AI generated, like semi-relevant stuff, let's sell 10 emails to people that we really have. So we're like, we might do outbound to managers of artists. And so instead of sending a thousand using AI, what we would do is send, you, you know, you're, we've actually working with this artist who's very similar to yours. We see that your artist is appearing in New York. We'd love to record him because we actually, you know, this is what we're doing. And the response rate's like really high, right? You know, that's the thing for me is AI is very cheap at doing very basic stuff, not terribly, you know, sometimes terribly. And so I just am not, I'm not, I don't think it's going to be that exciting for startups. I think it's useful in the fringes. I also think that AI has got a long history of creating brilliant demo tapes that like just like they're like oh the demo tapes amazing when does the album come out that never happens right like the album like, i don't know if you saw a trailer the other day that was made for like a movie mm-hmm. and it looked amazing right but like that will never go anywhere it's it just like an yeah. example and someone might do it at a hollywood studio or whatever i find it fascinating sitting from the sidelines because i've been using AI tools since like 2018 mm-hmm. for content production. So right. Like Otter AI, yeah. Descript, those yeah. kind of things, like automated stuff like Headliner and yeah. Opus Clips, like all yeah. these like video creation tools yeah. and stuff. And then people are blown away by the fact that you can ask this thing a question and it gives you the answer. And I'm yeah. like, this thing's been like auto transcribing 50 minutes of content right. from really shit audio yeah. five years ago. Yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. Way more impressive. Not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually, you know, and that's the funny thing. Um, People are excited about, uh, you know, LLMs, but there's hard things that are that they don't solve. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, like this is kind of the uh, the spam, the AI based spam I get. So I get an email from Silicon Valley Bank, right? And they're like clearly prospecting for new customers. And like they had all of this stuff, like they know which university I went to, they know which companies I've, you know, you know, started, and they know that I'm based in New York. And so it's quite personalized, right? It missed one very small detail, which is I'm already a customer of Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> That's the hard part, right? Which is like the internal database and like, you know, mapping the customer because it's maybe under a different company name than the one you're looking at. And so that's why. I'm just negative. Like, there's still hard things, and those hard things are still generally done by humans. What the AI is good at doing is these, like, these sort of low-level stuff. And I think that'll get better, and that's 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 good. But I, I'm just not 
and maybe one exception is maybe in certain areas of programming. I definitely see kind of like Copilot making it more efficient. I think AI is more exciting for big companies as like an efficiency. Like if I was running a really big insurance company, I'd be like looking at it going, you know, your claim handlers, like a lot of this is quite rules-based systems. How do we get our costs down? But like as an entrepreneur, I think it's really boring, right? It's just like, it's just not, I, I've looked at it, I've played with it, I've chatted a lot of people with business ideas on it. And I was like, like we've come up with like a fat zero. Uh, I don't, I'm not convinced. I, maybe within gaming, you can have like more intelligent um, NPCs. That would be kind of cool. But mostly, I, I think it's massively overhyped. Well, we'll leave it on that note. Um, thanks so much for watching, everyone, or listening. Uh, Nigel, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Uh, so, well, I'm Nigel Eccles on Twitter, and then Companies is Vault Music uh, on the App Store, also on Twitter, and then BetDex is BetDex.com. Awesome. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the podcast on your podcast player of choice or on YouTube if you're watching there. And also subscribe to the newsletter, sportandcrypto.substack.com. Every Monday, uh, we cover the biggest headlines or stories in the sports and Web3 worlds and go really deep on those. Uh, you can find me at Pet Berisha on Twitter, P-E-T-B-R-I-S-H-A, or on LinkedIn as well. You can find Sporting Crypto on LinkedIn or at underscore Sporting Crypto on Twitter. Before we wrap up, just remember that none of what we have said today is business or financial advice and this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or for your business. Where we are recording right now in the US, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Thanks very much once more for consuming this content and we'll have more Sporting Crypto podcasts for you soon.